Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is our text this morning. We're going to be in verse 3. We're back in Hebrews after a couple-week break. We're going to look at verses 3 through 13 here in just a moment. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 12, let me mention that next week we're going to take another break from Hebrews. Uh, We have the joy of having a special guest with us, Mwendula Mbewe. If you remember, was with us last year. He is the son of Conrad Mbewe, who is known internationally in our circles as one of the great preachers of our day, and his son, Mwendula Mbewe, who was here with us. And uh, if you heard him preach last year, you know that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. In fact, don't tell Conrad if you ever see him, but I think Mwendula is maybe even as good or better preacher than his dad. (laughs) And he's going to be with us next Sunday, and uh, we're really excited for that. I'm actually going to be gone. I'm going to be in Valdosta preaching uh, at a church down there for a friend of mine, but Mwendula will be here, and uh, so please do come and uh, revel in the exaltation of Christ through the preaching of his word through this dear brother, and then the following week we'll get back in Hebrews. Uh, I'm going to read the text here in just a moment, but let me say before I read it that this text has been one that I've been looking forward to as we've been through this journey through Hebrews now for uh, over a year, taking some breaks here and there. All of the Bible is true and profitable, but there are particular passages that are like, for me anyway, they're like windshield wipers on a, on a foggy day. They, 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 they clear the haze, the mud of life off of the, the windshield of our eyes. And this text this morning I think helps us make sense of much of life. And so as we read this passage and as we work our way through it and respond to it, I pray that wherever you are with the Lord, that he might use this for your good and for his glory. So let me read the text. This is the word of God, picking up in verse 3, Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and We respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us 
for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Well, let me ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Pray with me one more time. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for your providence in causing us to arrive at this particular point in Hebrews on this particular Sunday. You have ordained this day for mysterious and wise purposes that we can certainly not be aware of, but that we can benefit from. In fact, we will today. So I pray that your word would not return void, that it would do what you intend it to do, that it would wound us and heal us, and that for those that you are drawing to yourself, that it would save them. For those that are already yours, that it would strengthen them, and that, God, you would be glorified. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have three thoughts, a kind of outline that I'm going to hang our thoughts on as we work through this text for those that like an outline. I know some of you get nervous when I don't do this. Do this you wonder where we're going, and so I'm giving you a roadmap right up front. We're going to look at our perspective in discipline. I think that this text tells us that. And then the nature of discipline, and then our response to discipline. So our perspective in discipline, the nature of the Lord's loving discipline, and then our response to discipline. So first, our, our perspective and discipline. What, what, what do we think about when this idea, this concept of the Lord's discipline, which is what this passage is all about? And remember, just the flow of the text of Hebrews, the first 10 chapters were really the theology of how Jesus is better than anything else that's come before him. In fact, everything in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was a big shadow or a sign, a roadmap pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the promises of God to God's people in the Old Covenant. And so the temptation for these Hebrew Christians in Rome in the first century was to, because of social persecution, to go back to Judaism, to go back to the Old Covenant, which was socially acceptable, which would not have caused persecution for them. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, hold on to Jesus, don't go back, and hold on to Jesus because he's better. And then verse, or chapter 11 was a, a beautiful chapter about all of these examples of faith of people that have held on to the Lord, even in the promise in the Old Covenant. And here in chapter 12 now is this, this encouragement that even the persecution and the difficulty that they're going through is part of the Lord's design and it's for their good, the, that God is behind it. And he brings up this idea of, discipline. So what, what is discipline? What are we to think about that And when we have a perspective on what the Lord is doing in our lives? Well, first let me put a picture in your mind. I think I've shared it with you several times over the years. Years ago when um, Paul Fincher and I used to work out together and in the gym, and that was years ago when Paul used to work out with me. Not anymore, he doesn't. But um, I'm going to get... In, sorry, Paul. He's, he's way stronger than me now. He's giving me the... <laughs> What have I done to catch those stray bullets? But we used to go to the gym, and there was this dad that would bring his son. And the son had some sort of severe uh, cerebral palsy. And the dad would wheel him in in the wheelchair. 
And his palsy was so severe that the boy couldn't walk by himself. In fact, he really couldn't do much on his own. And the father would get him out of his chair, and then he would take him over to some mats, and he would put him on the ground, or he would put him on some machine and strap him in, and, and he would exercise the boy's muscle. The father would put pressure on the son's muscles and actually inflict pain on this boy. And you could hear... All the way on the other side of the gym, you could hear this boy moaning in pain. But everybody in the gym, if this would just happen randomly on the street and somebody was doing this to another person, you would probably run over to him and say, why are you doing this? Why are you hurting this person? But everybody knew that this father was putting weight, was putting pressure, was putting resistance, was putting this son in painful situations, and he was doing it for the good of his son because he loved him. And that's the picture here of what's going on in Hebrews chapter 12 is that this discipline that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the life of the Christian that it's really all of life in any sense, not just merely the sin that we're dealing with, although certainly that's part of it and the consequences that we may be facing because of our sin. And we're going to talk about the Lord's Uh, work in that, how how the Lord is at work even in our sin. It's never punishment, but it's always working for our good, the consequences that we may face. But even not just the direct result of our foolishness or our uh, continued rebellion against the Lord, but just everything that we're facing, think of it as just any weight, whether internal or external, that a Christian is bearing up under. And The writer of Hebrews is saying that the Lord is behind all of that and is doing it for our good. So let's just begin with that kind of definition, a really a comprehensive definition of any weight that the Christian is bearing in this world, whether it's a direct result of their sin or whether it's just something we're dealing with externally, that we are under the Lord's discipline. The second thing about our perspective and discipline is that that the writer wants us to understand is that it's cross-shaped, that everything that we endure in life, we can't detach it from putting it underneath and in light of and in the shadow of the cross. In fact, that's how he begins this text. He says in verse 3, he says, consider him, meaning Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. In other words, as you're going through whatever you're going through, don't forget what Christ has suffered on your behalf. That Jesus, your captain, your head has bore, in a sense, the discipline of the Lord, not because of his sin, but because of his substitutionary work. That, and this is the heart of the gospel. This is really what Hebrews and the whole Bible is about, is that Jesus has taken our place on the cross. He has substituted his perfect obedience for our rebellion, and he takes the consequences of our sin and this fallen world, and he bears it on the cross. That's what verse 3 is saying, that he endured from sinners hostility against himself, and that he did that for us. And so what the writer is saying is, is you go through what you're going through Always keep in mind the work of Christ on the cross to bear the wrath of God for you. And he's saying that you may be facing real and serious and dreadful things in this life. 
But the most serious and dreadful thing that any person will ever face is the wrath of God himself. And for the Christian, Jesus has absorbed that, extinguished it, and satisfied it on the cross. And so live in light of whatever you're facing through the lens of the cross. Look to Jesus, verse 1 and 2, the author and perfecter of your faith and subordinate everything that you're going through. In fact, subsume everything you're going through in your life through the lens and underneath what Christ has done for you in his bearing your ultimate discipline on the cross. And then he says in verse 4, this is the last thing on perspective and discipline. He says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, have you not resisted to the you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood? Now you might think, we might think that's possible. I'm not sure exactly, but it's possible that he's saying, Well, Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you and you haven't died. I don't think that's what he's pointing at, though. I think he's actually now taking our eyes off of the cross and causing us to look around at other Christians. And he's writing to Christians in Rome who at least at this point in history, when they received this letter by the writer who wrote Hebrews, had not yet begun to feel the physical persecution. Things like Romans being fed to lions in the Colosseum in Rome hadn't happened yet. That would happen in a few decades. And they weren't actually being martyred for their faith. That would come in a few decades. But earlier on in the New Testament era, in the book of Acts, we do read that Christians in Jerusalem were shedding their blood and were being martyred. We think of Stephen and others that were martyred and killed for their faith. And so I think what's going on in verse 4, just one thing to keep in our perspective, is that the writer of Hebrews is not only saying, consider Jesus, who endured the discipline of the Lord as a substitute on the cross for you, but consider, think about, don't, don't forget about other Christians around you who have actually gone through much worse. And that's a very apropos word for us today, especially in our context as Americans, when we think about other believers around the world that are going through very difficult struggles and strifes and strain and, and, and suffering uh, at the hands of wickedness. And so he's saying, look around you and, and be strengthened be, be encouraged by the Lord's work through his people. So that's a perspective and discipline, which now takes us to the nature of discipline. And this is the bulk of the text. The first thing that, that I think the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand and wants his first century audience to understand is that the nature of the discipline of the Lord is always loving and it's always fatherly. Look again in our text and with your Bibles in, in open on your laps, hopefully, in Hebrews 12, verse 5, he says, he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And you notice in your Bible that that's the, the rest of verse 5 and 6 is in quotations. He's quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and he says, my son, do not, so this is the Lord speaking, my son, do not regard, or this is the, 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 the writer of Proverbs speaking, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, verse 6, disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so notice that what the writer is doing here, he's using this Proverbs from chapter 3, and he's, he's bringing it into the current context that these Christians are facing in Rome, and he's, he's interpreting they're suffering, and consider this. 
that he's saying that this, what you're facing is actually a result of God's loving hand, that it's God doing this. So even though it may be your former brothers and sisters, fellow Jews that haven't trusted in Jesus that are persecuting you, or maybe a Roman empire that's persecuting you, and you seem, you might interpret from this that the Lord has abandoned you, and you're, you're in a sense kind of orphaned by God, the writer of Hebrews is using this Proverbs chapter 3, and he's reinterpreting for them their experience, and he's saying, no, actually, this is not a sign of God's abandonment, but the Lord is actually using these temporal situations, these earthly powers, these people around you as instruments of his love for you. Notice the, just the 180. We, we tend to think, and certainly the, writer, the, the, the recipients of this letter would be prone to think that this was a sign of God's abandonment and forsaking them. And he's saying, no, it's actually a sign of God's love for you. It's a sign of God being your father. Look at verse 8. He says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. And isn't the conclusion of our minds almost always the opposite when we go through trial? Where are you, O God? But he is actually saying that this is actually a sign of of God's fatherhood of his people. In fact, if you don't participate in some resistance of your own sin and its consequences and and the world and its brokenness around you, that is actually a sign of your illegitimacy. But turn it around and note that it is from God's good hand. Verse 9, he says, Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And so he's saying even earthly fathers who are imperfect in meeting out discipline, at least know how to discipline their children, and in much wiser and perfect ways, God is working behind situations. Think about a young child that doesn't understand what the motivations of his father may be in disciplining them, and the gap between a father, an earthly father's good intention, and a fussy young child's frustration with the discipline they're enduring, and then magnify that gap by a million fold. And that's what we're facing as God's children. Think about children that are, are not disciplined at all. And think about how difficult and what, what havoc they wreak on society and what a problem they are. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying that the discipline, what you're facing is actually from your father and it's loving and it's good. So discipline is loving and fatherly. Secondly, the nature of discipline is that it's it's never random. It's always purposeful. Look again at verse 10 of our text. Speaking of these earthly fathers, it says, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So then the discipline that we're facing, even the consequences that we may endure for our sin, is never punishment for our sin, but it's meant to wean us from our sin. All of the punishment for all of our sin was satisfied by Jesus on the cross. That beautiful hymn we sing, All My Sin, not in part, but the whole 
was laid on him on the cross. And as a result, it is well with my soul. And so whatever we may be facing, even its consequences for our foolishness, is not punishment, it's not God's wrath, but it's God's good, intended, fatherly, loving discipline that's meant to produce something good in our lives so that we might share in His holiness. And then I just love the the honesty of the Bible. Look at verse 11. It says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I love the honesty there, you know. It's painful. It's not necessarily enjoyable, but it's going to reap a harvest in your life. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it, who submit to it, who yield to it, who respond to it. And we're going to talk in just a moment about responding rightly to the discipline of the Lord. So the Lord's, the nature of the Lord's discipline is this loving, it's fatherly, it's never random or capricious, it's never... It's, it's never without intention. It's always purposeful. A couple verses, just wonderful, well-known verses in the New Testament that support this idea that I think I just want to put in your mind as we look at this text. One we read already, but let me read it again. Robert read it earlier, James 1. Count it joy, brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. Or we might even say when you're disciplined in various ways by the Lord. For you know that the testing or the disciplining of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's intention there. There's purpose. The Lord is doing this for your good. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 through 18. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are, transi- that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So again, there's this intention by the Lord. He's preparing for us. He's getting us ready for glory. And then finally, Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings or in our discipline, knowing that suffering where the loving discipline of God produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So see the nature of discipline. It's loving, it's fatherly, it's never random, and it's always on purpose. So here's four conclusions that we can make when enduring discipline. Here's, I think, four calculations that I see in my own heart and almost 20 years of shepherding and pastoring and being part of the elder team of this church, spending many, many hours with people in a pastoral setting. Four conclusions that I see our hearts as God's people make when we endure discipline. And the first three are off, and the fourth, I think, is the right one. Four conclusions we make when enduring discipline. First, a conclusion that we often make is that God has abandoned me. And oftentimes, it actually, it, here's the deal, why, these, why these, even these first three, are, our, our hearts are prone to go down these false roads is because, because there's elements that feel very true in them, even if they're not ultimately true. But the first calculation sometimes that we make is that God has abandoned me. 
It seems like everything, just one thing after another. And I think about families and people in this room who just seem like lately they have been dealing with a, a cascade, just a tsunami after tsunami of difficulty in their life. And in fact, the Lord actually writes this human experience into the Bible. This is one of the things that I love about the honesty of Scripture. One of the things that I think uh, reinforces to me the grittiness and the, 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 the divine inspiration of Scripture is that God actually writes into His Holy Scripture this type of doubt and frustration with Him. In fact, Psalm 13 says, is basically a complaint against God that says, Where are you, God? How long will you forget me forever? And God actually writes that human emotion into the book to validate the fact that we as his people at times will feel this way. That God has abandoned me. But friends, that's not all that the Bible says about this emotion. We need to go come to places like Psalm 139 where it says, even though I go to the uttermost parts of the ends of the earth, even down to the depths of Sheol, you are there. You're with me. So we know that God has, has not abandoned us, but sometimes that's a conclusion we make. Secondly, we, we make the wrong conclusion that God is, is punishing me. God is punishing me. And yes, the Lord does chastise. He does discipline us, is our word of the day, for our sin. But it's always for our good. It's never as a punishment for our sins. Because if God were to, in that sense, punish us for our sins... What are we saying? What sort of statement are we making about the completion or the sufficiency of Jesus' work on the cross? Think about this when we think that God is somehow punishing me. And this is this, this wrong theological concept that so many of us, I think we're, we're so natural to go down this road. If God were to punish us for our sins, then several things must be true then that would mean that what Jesus did on the cross to bear all of our sin, to satisfy all of God's wrath, was somehow insufficient. And that can't be the case. And if God were punishing us for our sins in these temporal senses when we're going through difficulties and trials, then if he were to do that, then whatever we were facing, we would be, we would be smoked. We would have no chance. Because of the holiness of God and the severity of our rebellion against him, the little things that we bear that Paul describes as momentary light afflictions, if they were true punishment for our sins against the eternal, glorious, immeasurable holiness of God, would need to be actually much worse than even the worst consequence that anybody ever faced in their earthly life. And so when we when we spend some time just sort of thinking about it theologically, whatever may be happening when we're enduring consequences in our life or we're struggling against an external foe or we're enduring suffering or we're enduring trial, even though it may feel like it, dear brother or sister, know that God is not punishing you. He is disciplining you for your good. And all of the punishment, all of the wrath, all of the anger of God was satisfied by Jesus on the cross. That's the heart of the gospel. So that conclusion, again, must be, must be false. The third false conclusion that we make is that 
and this is just kind of the, the Star Wars God, you know, the, the dualistic, you know, battle against good and evil. God's really, he's really, he means well, but I don't know if he can finish the deal. It's just this God is hoping for my best. You know, it could go either way, depending on my faith. This trial, this discipline that I'm facing, boy, God's just, he's this really benevolent grandpa up in heaven, and he means well for me, but you know, tomorrow's uncertain, and if I just make the right decision, or if this right person comes into my life, or if, if karma kind of breaks my way, then, 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 maybe this will happen and it will all end up well, and God is up there cheering me on like this cosmic cheerleader hoping for my best. And I think many modern-day Americans fall into this sort of man-centered, subconscious false theology. And friends, when we analyze it and we think about it, again, it just doesn't square with Scripture. It's, it's a pressure. It's a weight that the human soul just cannot bear. That just hoping that earthly circumstances or hoping that a person or hoping that there's enough faith inside of me or enough grit in my determination that can somehow make things better for me, that I can you know, sort of strap myself up by my bootlaces and do better and that God will be pleased with me and he's just waiting, waiting, waiting on me is a pressure that the human soul cannot bear. But the reason it feels true to us is because there is a sense in which God does actually call us to pursue him. He calls us to make right decisions. He calls us to work, our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But in an ultimate sense, God is not hoping for our best. He's actually planning for our best, which brings us to the fourth and only right conclusion that we must make when enduring discipline is that God is purposefully, he's purposefully working for are good. Now, um, I tell you, I struggle. I do. Um, I think for those of you that have been around Crosspoint for a while, um, you know that I hope you understand that uh, the utter and exhaustive sovereignty of God is one of the themes. Every preacher's got kind of his little hobby horses, you know. You guys know that's one of mine, right? Right? All right. Don't don't giggle too much. That'll hurt my feelings. But but I, I do I do think. But but really, I'm actually. I'm more convinced of this doctrine than I even let on. I mean, I don't, I don't think that there is an atom or a molecule in the furthest corner of the universe that is independent of God's purposeful every second, every nanosecond involvement. I think everything happens according, in some strange and mysterious way, according to the good, sovereign, wise providence of God. And I got the same questions you do. Don't, don't act like I'm some ogre. I got the same questions you do. I understand that we have real choices to make and that sin is wicked. And then, whoa, what does this have to say about God's relationship with evil? I, I get all that. I, I get all that. I do. I do. I'm sympathetic to those things. But I just, I believe 
that God's ways are above our ways, Isaiah 55, and there are just things that I cannot piece together, and I've got real decisions to make, and evil is evil, and God hates it, but he's not, he's not reacting to it in some mysterious and wise way. He is sovereign over all things. But friends, here's my struggle. I, I preach that a lot. I see that in the text a lot. It's just kind of a natural disposition. It's a natural road that I go down when I read the Bible. Maybe, maybe sometimes I go down it too much. I confess that. No, 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 nobody has the right emphasis all the time when they're reading the Bible. But there can be a way that such a glorious doctrine like that can be so, so high and lofty, even though we know it's true, that it just feels... It feels just like it's up in the clouds, you know? And it can feel like, how, how, do, how do I take that and bring it down into my life? Because, because I feel this sort of hypocrisy, if I, could, if I could just be honest with you guys. And we've moved into the part of the sermon where Brad is doing self-help therapy in front of hundreds of his best friends. I feel at times a measure of hypocrisy because... I know these things to be true. I see them in the Bible. I read things like Isaiah 46 where he says to the prophet, I have declared the end from the beginning. And I, I read Romans 8, 28 that says that he works all things together, all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I, I read those things and, and, I, and I'm strengthened by them, but sometimes they just feel so up here and they're easy to preach in a way. We, we've long since moved past the point of a church as a church where those things are controversial truths. Now they're actually truths that I think we enjoy, we're comforted by, but they can be so in the clouds that I can easily preach them on a Sunday, but man, on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and, a, and an email that's critical or a, a situation that I'm facing in my own personal life that's it's just frustrating and it just seems, that thing can seem so distant. Does anybody else feel like that? And, and so I believe, I believe that the fourth calculation or conclusion is true. I know, I, I, in a sense, I know that God is purposefully working all things together for my good. And I know that to be true when I'm sitting in my office praying and talking to somebody whose life is busted up and broken. But man, it's hard to actually... Feel that and live from that on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday when life is going to hell in a handbasket. Amen? So what's our, what's our response to this? It's, it's not to forsake that truth and to, to, to run the other way. It's just to confess that and to say, Lord, it's like that man in Mark 9. Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. That's the only path I know to go down biblically is, Lord, I, I know these things to be true. I, I don't understand how it will actually ever happen in my life, but I trust you. And friends, I think that trying too hard to piece those things together and come up with some sort of pragmatic human answer that crosses every T and dots every I, in a sense, cuts against the very call of the Bible, which is to not walk by sight, but by faith. 
And so here's my point. I recognize that gap in my life between what I know to be true and what I'm actually experiencing in my heart. And the only thing I know to do is to confess it and to press into the Lord despite the contradiction in my heart. And friends, I think that's what faith is. I think that's what faith is. To keep going even when you don't see far down the road. That's faith. One of my favorite hymn writers, John Newton, wrote this beautiful hymn. Um, I, I think it captures this. Um, I think it captures this, this really, really well. You know, John Newton was the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. And he wrote this. It's called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. We're going to sing this someday soon. Uh, it, it, in its old arrangement, it's difficult to sing, but there's a newer arrangement that's a little bit easier for a congregation to sing, and we're going to try it soon. But listen to this. This is Newton, I think, putting his finger on some of these things. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds dreadful. <laughs> blasted my gourds and laid me low. Here's where I live a lot. Here's where I live in the middle of the week. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials or disciplines, I, this is the Lord speaking in this last stanza, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free <laughs> and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. I live in those last two stanzas most of the time. Lord, I don't understand it. And I think the answer from Hebrews 12 and the answer from Newton, who I think is really giving us a song about Hebrews 12, is that the Lord, these inward trials, these disciplines, he employs to set us free from all of our vain counterfeit gods. And what's the conclusion then? Let's end with this. What's our response to discipline? Verse 12, I love this. This is the, 
son of a football coach, and I've been in the locker room many a time when my dad's team was down by 14, and he had to rally them and say, come on, boys, let's go. Verse 12, what's our response to this discipline? Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. In other words, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning, Friday, Saturday, when, I, when I'm not necessarily riding on the, the coattails or the high of exalting in the Lord's utter sovereignty, when things aren't clear to me, when my windshield isn't clear, when it's muddy, when I'm discouraged, when I don't understand what the Lord is doing in my life or in the life of somebody that I'm sitting across that I love, the Lord may not give me a particular temporal answer He just tells me, no, no, get up, get up, boy, get up, son. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. What's the analogy there? Keep marching, soldier. Keep walking. Keep trusting God. No specific answers. The burden is not on your finite human soul to piece all of this together and understand the deep annals of the wisdom of God. Get up and walk in faith because God is good. And that's this text. And that's this text. Friends, what does this look like in your life? What are you going through? What are you, what are you enduring? Make your calculations, but only one of them is right. The Lord is your Father if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Him, And this is the great privilege of the good news of the gospel is not only has Jesus died for your sins and removed the consequences and the punishment and the wrath of God, but he has promised to bring you all the way home. And whatever happens to you is part of God's good fatherly design. And so you can be armed with that knowledge and you can walk. Now, how do you walk? You walk with other brothers and sisters. You walk by hearing God's word. You walk by singing truths of God's word. You walk by praying together. You walk by responding in repentance. You walk by getting up again. Yea, though a righteous man may fall seven times, of Proverbs says, he rises eight, and he gets back up. So let's do that. Let's do that even now and this week. In just a moment, the worship team is going to come back and lead us in a song. And maybe you need to, maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need, don't, don't, don't let this moment, come on, I know I'm not acting like the only time we can really seek the Lord is when we're gathered together, but there is something powerful about being and just hearing the word of God and being with brothers and sisters. It's, it's, it's a kind of uh, opportunistic moment to press into God. And so if you need prayer for something, or you need to just find a corner of the sanctuary or turn around in your chair and kneel and do business with God in repentance and prayer and asking him for wisdom and discernment and perspective that he would lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Do that. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you. And oh, what a sweet grace it is to have a brother and sister in the Lord put their hands on your shoulders, and even though they may not know the specifics of your situation, just go with you to God and say, Lord, give us eyes of faith. Give us strength. And now's the time that you may need to do that.
And so in just a moment, we're going to stand, the band, the worship team is going to be singing. Maybe you need to just kind of find a place or some of the elders, I'm just going to ask you guys to be ready. Just move out. Just be ready to go pray. Somebody that you know to be a Christian. And maybe for the next few minutes, you just need to go to God in prayer with a brother and sister and ask God for this type of perspective that he would lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Seize this moment, friends. Seize this moment, and let's do it together. Let's all stand, and as I pray, let's sing, pray, respond, repent, and go to the Lord and respond to him. Uh, Lord, take this text, take these words, take this exhortation, and lay us bare, I pray. Lord, I confess my hypocrisy. I confess that these things are easy to preach, but man, they are harder to live out when it's just me alone in my room. Lord, I confess that gap, and I say with this man, this father in Mark 9, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I know that you're a good father, and that every inward trial and external trial that I am facing is first passed through your hand and it has part of your good design in my life to set me free as Newton says from these false earthly joys that I would find my rest and my hope and my satisfaction in you Lord in these next few moments would you help us press into that press into that not to miss this moment not to not to by laziness or pride or embarrassment or any other thing or self-absorption miss this moment, but may we seize what you want to do in us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the Lord.